Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This is a transformative time for Black America. Our income is at an all-time high, and the opportunity for economic empowerment is unprecedented. It's not just about dreaming anymore. It's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. Build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com blueprints. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, still in the Brooklyn bunker. Folks, I am really excited to bring to you this Friday a really great conversation um, on, as it happens to be, Black Maternal Health Week. What is Black Maternal Health Week? Well, folks, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago when tennis superstar Serena Williams gave birth to her daughter, she had a harrowing, harrowing experience in the hospital that almost cost her her life. And why was that? It was because Serena, who very much knew her body and knew that something was wrong um, as she was in the birthing process, asked the doctors and the nurses present to give her the care and medicine that she needed because she suffers from um, a condition where she has a series of blood clots, which are can be life-threatening. And she was ignored. And it took multiple ass um, to get her the care that she needed. Thank God, obviously, she did. But too many... Too many black women who don't have the wealth, don't have the fame, are ignored. And because of that, they die. 300 black babies die every year in the wealthiest country, one of supposedly the wealthiest countries in the industrialized world. How is that? How is that not a national alarm that is set off to talk about this very preventable pandemic that is experienced in the black community. And so today, um, I'm really excited to have a conversation on both ends, uh, both, uh, a, a woman who is creating a birthing center in Eastern Massachusetts that is dedicated, 
um, to the health and well-being of black and brown women and moving outside of obstetrics and back into the tradition of midwifery and doulas. Um, we love to believe nowadays that that is considered alternative medicine. Meanwhile, you'll hear in the interview that I have with Nishira that, oh, well, that is how my mother was born, my aunts, my uncles, all at the hands of my great-grandmother in Jamaica. And many of us have that story, right, with our families, with our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers. And yet, by virtue of capitalism and white supremacy and the pharmaceutical industry and all of these things, we've allowed them to move us away from what was, as Nishira will say, a very safe and sacred practice. And so what does it mean then to find a way to return to what we know is time and tested, right? Later, then, I will have a conversation with Dr. Makiba McCreary, who is the new president of a fund that was put together by Black executives in Massachusetts to lead on issues such as Black maternity health. Um, and to look at the capital that they have built in their own careers and come together as a collective to take on issues in areas that white philanthropy has failed, right? Or neglected to address. So folks, I hope that you enjoy these two in-depth interviews uh, on this Feel Good Friday after a long an arduous week, I wanted to end with some hopefulness, some realness, right, in terms of what black women and women of color face in this country who are on a birthing journey and what they are up against, but also what is being done, right, solution-oriented um, in, in thinking about here is the problem, but here are people that are working to alleviate that issue. So I hope that you enjoy the upcoming interviews. Drop me a note in the comment section and let me know how this landed for you. If you are a person that has their own birthing story, um, have you shared it, right? Was it something that you felt like you could share, that there was safe space to do so? Please do share with us in the comment section. Folks, I'm very excited to welcome to Woke AF for the very first time, uh, Nashira Barril, who is a director of Boston's Neighborhood Birth Center. Um, and, you know, I, I think that during uh, Black Women's Maternity Week, right, it's always an opportunity to, one, I think, talk about the healing side and the transition that Black women uh, and women of color have made from your traditional birthing um, in inside hospitals and what have you, but also to talk about the fact that Black women still die, right, in giving birth more so than any other any other demographic. It doesn't matter that you know the United States is quote unquote one of the wealthiest nations. That this is still a major issue. And I remember, right, as, as I'm certain you did, listening to Serena Williams' story a couple of years ago, this amazing, world-renowned athlete, wealthiest woman, all of these things, and she's in pain during labor and being ignored. 
tell having being told that what she's feeling, she doesn't know what she needs. Um, it's normal. Um, and I think to myself, my God, if she hadn't been Serena Williams, she would have ended up as a statistic. Nashira, can you talk to us about why we still need to have these conversations and then the work that you do to make birthing safe and not only safe, but like the miracle and then the, the enjoyment and the connection and the alignment that it should really be. Mm. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Not only safe, but sacred is, is yes. really our goal. Right. And, and one of the guiding questions uh, for us here at neighborhood birth center is like, what's possible for us collectively, not just like the family, the community, but, but the big, we, all of us, mm-hmm. our, our planet, when we get birth, right when we really invest in um, in all systems, but in particular in the healthcare and maternal healthcare system um, and get birth right. And I'm one to say, I think that we can correct for public health outcomes, the economy and, and climate change. So I just like, I want to start there. I think we want it, mm-hmm. we want birth to be safe and sacred. Um, yeah. And thanks for, you know, I, I mean, I think that the, the, there's this tension, right. That we want to both like, um, explicitly name the way that the the crisis of maternal health in this country uh, is not working well for anyone and is and mm-hmm. bears down the worst on black birthing folks and black women in particular. Um, and that has, you know, so much to do with the healthcare system and the ways that, you know, the healthcare system is rooted in inequity um, and white supremacy culture and, and, uh, racism and, and also the intersection of all the other systems, right? So the ways that it is, um, inherently kind of like unhealthy to be black and, and female in this country. And that that bears on our reproductive systems in ways that result in bad outcomes. And, um, but I want to go back to one thing you said though, at the beginning, which yeah. is like kind of the traditional, I think you said about the traditional ways of birthing and that actually just call us into like, what is traditional? Traditional right. birthing, right. in particular, black traditions, is midwifery and home birth. Right, right. And so, in some ways, as somebody who you know, I identify as a black woman, I've given birth at home twice with midwives, and I hear all the time, "Oh, you had the most, you know, alternative, the most non-traditional birth." And you know, I'm like, actually, let's pause there and think about what is maybe the most traditional way to give birth. And so in a lot of ways, what we're doing to bring community-based midwifery back into our neighborhood um, and into our community is a reclaiming of midwifery and a remembering of what it is that our ancestors knew so well before midwifery became racially redlined and the, the growth of obstetrics and that became you know, dominated by white supremacy culture and white men and and big institutions and payers, like we have known how to, to how to catch babies and how to birth babies forever. And so I think just kind of the um, a big part of our work is around that narrative shift and that remembering, because as we work to open the first birth center here in Boston and to do so, you know, led by black folks and, and in a in a in a black neighborhood in Boston, we want to make sure that, you know, and part of what we're doing is like bringing folks along to say, this is not white women's stuff that we're trying to, you know, do an out of hospital birth and a crunchy birth center. Like this is, you know, this, this belongs to all of our ancestors. And so that remembering is an important piece of our work is to reframe. 
you know, I love that you call it a remembering because as you're, as you were speaking, I was reminded, um, of the fact that my great grandmother, my family is from Jamaica. My great grandmother birthed all of my aunts and uncles and my mother. Um, uh, and what I learned as I, as I got, as I was older and, you know, able to ask a lot more questions was she was the midwife for her town yes, and knew how to turn babies, um, and, you know, and aid, uh, women who were in, in need and that, that was just a part of life. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, as I was listening to you, that a part, you know, not one, uh, not the small part, but one of the major parts of white supremacy is a detaching from your story yes. and a detaching from your lineage in a way that juxtaposes it against whiteness and Eurocentric values and anything that is, that falls outside of that framework, then somehow is less than. Mm -hmm. So we move from this space as you're, as you're saying from, you know, what, oh, it's so alternative. No, the actual, actually, to your point, the alternative was obstetrics. The, the alternative was hospitals. The alternative was presenting a capitalist industry around something that should be sacred. That's right. That's right. How do you go about your work in trying to reattach our original narrative? How do you bring this story of our ancestry and our history to people who have been robbed of it? Hmm. Thank you for that question. It, it is central to our work. We're, we're working to open a birth center. And I often say that as much as we are working on a business plan and a nonprofit structure and a and real estate acquisition, the third leg of our stool is narrative and community engagement and really community organizing around this. And I think one of the things that has been really key for us um, is a, a commitment to intergenerational healing, right? That, that like, because, so it's the remembering, as you said, like we, like I said a thing and then you're like, oh yeah, my grandmother in Jamaica, right? So there's that and it happens like that. And we're just like, you know, everybody's great grandmother was born at home. And everyone's like, oh yeah, you're right. But then the other thing is like, I have friends who are, you know, my age who have come to me interested in out of hospital birth. We have no birth centers in Eastern Massachusetts. So there's often asking, oh, wow. about, they're asking about home birth. And um, I'll talk to them about home birth and they say, you know, Nash, I'm down. It's just that my abuelita, she's not, she's scared. She's not going to support me. She's, you know, and so I think that the conversations that need to happen where the grandmother is done childbearing, but is the matriarch of the family and has experienced her own trauma and mm. loss, mm. right? That the, the, the data that you started the conversation with, like that is, that's our, our people, so when we talk about the the health outcomes, it's, we can't do it in a way that's detached from saying everybody knows somebody who has had, you know, a bad outcome, which is how we talk about it in public health, right? And so an infant who has, you know, died or been born prematurely or, you know, or, an, or any other outcome, an emergency C-section, you know, some blood loss, like something that, so that, so the trauma is very real. And so I think in our work to bring people along and I, you know, I don't always like try to <laughs> try to correct everyone when they say it's alternative, but they're like, oh, that's really alternative. 
Yeah. So let's talk about one, how it got that way. Yes. Let's talk about the history of how midwifery got so white. It wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was legislated that way. It was made that way through policy. And two, let's have an, an intergenerational conversation because again, the childbearing age folks might be like knocking at our door when the birth center opens next year, but it's their mother and their grandmother and the other elders in their lives or their, you know, their peers who have had bad outcomes or known somebody who has, who, who says, I don't know. Right. And so I think it's like, um, part of our work is not just about the people who will, you know, be our, our clients at the birth center who will give birth there, but it's like our whole community has to heal. We are carrying the trauma of generations of bad outcomes. And so having a space to talk about that. And like I did a, um, when we were doing some early kind of needs assessment around the birth center, I, we did some, um, key informant interviews and, and stakeholder circles. And, um, I remember asking these questions about people's birth story and this several, I mean, they, they were very emotionally charged and somebody said, you know, my kid is 17 years old and nobody has ever asked me about my birth experience. She said, this is the first place where I am because you get home and you have a healthy baby and all the focus is at least, you know, like that's like the, the bar is like you survived, right? The low, right? right. Yep. And that's why you, you can't, you don't get to complain about anything and whether you had, you know, a hard time in the postpartum period or any, or lactation, breastfeeding was hard, but she said, she wept. She said, oh, gosh, nobody's ever asked me about that. And so we're holding and, and then as we talked about it, she said, oh, I can remember not feeling listened to. I can remember telling them I had pain. I can remember asking if it was normal to be bleeding like this. I can remember. Right. And so I think that part of it is, is. I think the remembering of that, but in a container that is held, you know, we are not trying to like take anybody out by having them relive their trauma, but to tend to those wounds because they're with us and they can be the thing where that auntie who has a 17 year old now is going to say to to their, their nibbling their you know, whoever's pregnant in their life. Oh, I don't know about that midwifery thing. Cause so if we can like bring them into a, a loving container to kind of heal from the stuff that we hold collectively and the stuff that we've taken from media, all the stuff we've downloaded. I mean, have you ever seen a, a rom-com with an orgasmic birth or a home birth? No, we see all these like harrowing, you know, screaming images. And so I think we've got collectively like a lot of healing and reconciling to do. And I think that that happens through, you know, kitchen table conversations and story, story circles and, um, when we can gather safely again, we cannot wait to do some open mic nights and uh, and just invite people to to heal kind of collectively through storytelling. You know, the, part of this too, um, outside of, and not as if we can actually move outside of the white supremacist lens, but mm-hmm. part of this too is the fact that birthing people keep their, hold their trauma to themselves. I have so many friends who have given birth probably in the last five years. Um, and their stories vary, but not in their degree of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and, and they have expressed to me as a, as a person who does not have children because they feel like they can share and not be judged. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not feel like a failure, yeah. feel like their bodies didn't do something right. I had a friend who was, um, 
struggling with breastfeeding. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, is feeling like, uh, my body is letting me down, you know, type of thing. And again, feeling that you can confide in me because I'm not going to then offer my, you know, like a whole weighted opinion. I'm just there, like you said, as a container to, to, to hold, to, to hold her feelings. And so how do you speak to that about breaking down this kind of the, the silence, the silence on part of the struggle, right? That mm-hmm. everyone doesn't get the, the, the lush glowing, uh, growing hair and fingernails that people lose their hair and, you know, and, and have terrible acne and are in excruciating pain. And it isn't this glorious thing. So that, does that mean that they are less, you know, less than for that, or should they be, you know, made to feel alone? So how do you how do you go about you know in the creation of of this of this sacred space breaking down that silence and that ju- yeah. and that judgment yeah um well one i thank you for being that friend we all need to have that friend that we can go to and i think i want to add another place where the silence comes in too which is around loss there's a cultural thing where we don't tell anyone we're pregnant until we pass the first trimester cuz because if we're more likely to lose a pregnancy in the first trimester, and then it's as if it didn't happen. I'm like, oh, no, I'm telling you the minute I find out so that if I have a loss, you can hold that with me. That is yeah. such, such a deeply rooted practice of like silencing our trauma and our loss, right? Then it's totally normal. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple miscarriages. We don't talk about it. I, I talk about it all the time because it's part of saying like, you know, but this whole idea that we wait to tell is just like, I wanted to bring that in as another way that we kind of like silence this and abortion. Like God, we don't talk about that. Right. I've had a couple of those too. Like we just don't talk about that. And so I think that, um, to the, to the, how we break that, I think is, is, is the vulnerability, you know, mm-hmm. is, and, and doing so, um, you know, in small experiments with people, I think it's one thing to like, you know, be out on Instagram talking about it and blessed are those who are like kind of telling the real yeah. deal story out there. Um, and also just experimenting because the minute we say it to somebody else, they're like, oh, I had a miscarriage too. Oh, I had, you know, a hard time breastfeeding too. And so I think that um, it is a cultural thing, the, the, the silencing and the kind of perfectionism around it and the shaming that we do um, you know, in the community of people who birth to others about, you know, uh, did you have a C-section? Like there is no right or wrong way to birth a baby. No. And, and reproductive justice is choosing when and if and where and how you yep. want to, if you do. And so I think, um, I would just say it's kind of like experimenting with, you know, small tribes of folks that we feel like we can get, get real and get raw with. And then having, you know, the small is all right. And then letting those those little cultural patterns between you and two friends reverberate out. And I think the other thing, and one of the things that I think about a lot, I was just saying this to a local artist who I'm hoping to work with on like a, a series of like, you know, I'll call them greeting cards, because I cannot stand going to the pharmacy to buy a card for a baby shower, but there because I don't like those cards either, but there's certainly no cards for loss. There's certainly no cards, yep. you know. Yep. After an abortion, whether it was one you chose or one you had to have, but there's there's no cards for, you know, like the realness, know, the, the all of the pregnancy. Yeah, this 
like, like when you go into labor, may you feel, you know, the power. And so I just like, I, I, I have a dream of like, you know, creating a line of cards like that. Cause I, I think love part that. Of what we also have to do culturally is like be saying to you, like, you know, you got this, right. And we got you. And I think that, you know, all of that, in some ways, the silence is replicated by, by the greeting card aisle, because the things that we're supposed to applaud you for and cheers, it's boy are there and the other things are not there. So even if you wanted to send a card when somebody had a loss, culturally, they're not even out there. No, and I think that that's so right. And I, you know, again, it is really around the the silence around it all that then produces the shame, which has us, you know, passing on uh, generations of trauma, as opposed to being able to be in a place, you know, we, we, you know, in, in our lexicon, now we say normalize this and normalize that. But I don't actually think that we put the activity behind the normalize that we are saying, right? Because part of normalization means continued discussion. It isn't just something that is one and done. And, you know, to, to your point about folks on social media, I will say, you know, celebrity is, can be a great thing and a bad thing. Chrissy Teigen, who, you know, wife of, uh, uh, of John Legend, you know, supermodel, chef, all of those things, she had announced her third pregnancy. You know, every, you know, it was covered in like People magazine and then traumatically uh, mm-hmm. loses the baby. And mm-hmm. instead, and then you had, and then she was very public and has remained public about that loss and mourning that loss and having a funeral for that baby and like having, you know, her kids understand in the, in the spiritual tradition that she was raised in, you know, what it means to honor the dead. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were people who came out because people love to hate and they came out and they're just like, why can't you just mourn in private? Like, why is she looking for attention? And, you know, and so I want to ask you, like, do you feel by virtue of like doing an open mic or doing these things that people are going to be like, this is supposed to be private. And why, why does everything have to be public? Like, what is your pushback to that? Um, I'm like, you'll have to come <laughs> because I think that the, right, the <laughs> right, 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 you know, but, but I think that it will be more impactful and healing to, it'll be impactful and healing to more people than it will to those one or two who are, who, you know, have not yet seen how their liberation is bound to the storytelling and the liberation of that person who's speaking. Right. Maybe you've never been pregnant, don't intend to be, never had a loss, never. But if you can't kind of see your humanity reflected in that person, then, you know, um, love and light. But like what we're trying to do is really for for the collective. And so I think that um, I really haven't thought about my pushback to to those particular naysayers. I mean, I think that we we get a lot of I get a lot of pushback already. Right. In, yeah, in yeah. communities of color that are like, well, you know, is it safe? And, you know, what about when something goes wrong and what? And so we, we have so much work to do that I think I'm, I'm excited to take, I'll call it, take the risk of doing that storytelling and that open mic to bring, to bring, you know, 90% of people along, even if a few people say, you know, that that shouldn't happen. Cause this is at the end of the day, Danielle, this is about our, our, our bound liberation and our, and like, generations ahead Mm -hmm. and so um you know 
I just know that like at the root of this, I'm trying to get free. I'm trying to get my people free. And um, I guess if people, you know, feel like that should happen in, in, uh, in quiet, they're not trying to get free yet and they're not ready and that's okay. But we're not going to get free either way. That is absolutely okay. Nishira, tell, tell folks um, how, if they want to support uh, the development of uh, of um, your the the birthing center, they want to get involved. They want more information. Please uh, tell the woke AF audience uh, how they can participate and learn more. Yes, thank you. So um, we are online at um, neighborhoodbirthcenter.org. We're also on social media um, at Neighborhood Birth Center. And we um, we are at a point right now where we're in a capital campaign. We're raising uh, $3 million to open the city's first birth center. And as I said, the only one in eastern Massachusetts. And um, on some days, it feels like a huge raise, right? Every Because every $10 donation makes me still feel like, oh, my gosh, people are really supporting this. And really, it's our community that's building it. Um, and then the flip side, Danielle, if I could just call in kind of like Please. philanthropy and um, and the racialization of the distribution of wealth in this country and stolen wealth is like, why am I having house parties to raise $3 million to open a birth center that's actually going to save lives and save money? So there's a way that like also the 3 million that we're trying to raise through house parties is a rounding error. So I, I do mm. this like, you know, a little bit of a, of a feeling between like in, incredibly profound gratitude that our community is stepping in um, to open this birth center in the absence of systems um, that really should be funding um, and supporting the, the, the financing and the opening of a key part of our healthcare infrastructure. Um, but, but so yeah, it's a call to like, you know, so, but, but you know what, in the absence of anybody ever doing it, community is here and we're opening Absolutely. the city's first birth center. And so we welcome, you know, donations and support and every dollar at this point, cause we've, we've raised our operating funds for the year. Every dollar at this point goes to the purchase and renovation of our space. And we hope to open in 2023. Well, I hope to have you back to discuss the excitement around the opening um, folks, if you are looking to contribute, please do so. Um, because we need, we need more, we need, we need more, um, involvement and more community, uh, more community care and healing. Nishira, Can I add one thing? Yeah, please. Go ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to say, cause you were saying we need more and I, and I was like, yeah, we need more birth centers. And what we know, um, the other part of my work is I co-direct, uh, birth center equity, which is a national strategy to redirect full spectrum capital to birth centers led by people of color. Most birth centers are for profits that are started by midwives using their personal savings and lines of credit. And it means that um, most uh, midwives of color and communities of color are left without birth centers. And so we have a cohort of um, 30 birth centers that we support through technical assistance and grants and funds. And um, so there, you know, I would just say also find a birth center in your community um, and go to birthcenterequity.org because we're out here and we're all, everyone has a business plan, a legal structure, you know, uh, a, a building and space in mind. And it's all about just moving capital that um, that this country absolutely has to, and we need to redirect that to birth centers. A hundred percent. Thank you so much Thank for making you. the time to join Woke AF. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thanks so much, Danielle.
Folks, I am very excited to be welcoming to Woke AF Daily for the first time Dr. Makiba McCreary, who serves as president of the New Commonwealth Racial Equity and Social Justice Fund. Um, and NCF is a coalition founded of black and brown executives from Massachusetts, leading corporations united to support black and brown communities um, amid COVID, in the wake of George Floyd, and just roughly a whole lot of things that we need economic support and power around. Um, Dr. McCreary, talk to us about why this fund, why this came about in, I, I believe it is 2021. And, you know, you've already raised uh, an extraordinary amount, 30 million towards, or, or maybe it's more than that at this point, but what I have is 30 million towards your hundred million dollar goal. So, so talk to us about, um, the why behind this. Sure. Thank you. First of all, for having me. And also, um, I know you hosted Nishira, um, Burrell earlier, and she's an incredible partner for NCF, um, particularly in this partnership with, um, Mass General Brigham and our focus on maternal health equity, um, especially for black women. Um, and here we are. We um, were founded about two years ago. And um, I have to say that I wasn't a part of the, the initial um, beginning of the organization, but I am really, really thrilled to have joined. And I remember the moment it was announced. And I remember being really proud that um, 19 colleagues across the city really put themselves, their own positionality in a slightly precarious you know, place because they stepped in front mm -hmm. of their corporations and said, we're going to lead this and you're mm -hmm. going to support it financially, but we're going to lead this. Um, and so fast forward, we have about um, a little over $3 million worth of investments um, into black and brown leaders across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And um, we are um, about 59 strong in terms of those organizations and we anticipate getting to 100 million so that we can push out 10 to 15 percent of our corpus annually, not that three to five percent that typically philanthropy um, moves out of the door. Why is it important for this to be led by black executives? You know, oftentimes within the black community, we hear we need to help each other more. We need to be lifting each other up. And, you know, personally, as somebody that has been on the ground in activism and in, in movements um, for a majority of my career, I've always seen black people working in solidarity with each other and with, you know, with other allies and communities. And so what is it about the funding side of this and the, the, the coming together on um, on the resources side that is so important? You know, typically you think of philanthropy and you think of protecting wealth. Um, you don't think mm. of, right? Like that, that's sort of the structure. Yeah. That's the way it was, it's been set up and that's the way that we operate. Um, but when I say we, I don't mean collective we people of color because frankly, we have been redlined out of that, that process. We receive, you know, less than 10% of philanthropic dollars go to our, our, um, black and brown leaders um, nationally, and it's just as um, stark in Massachusetts. I can tell you that having spoken to the folks we've invested in, these these leaders, for them to know that they have been um, respected in such a way that these dollars are, are unrestricted, that they are um, going to them, because we 
firmly believe that they are closest to the solutions. And therefore, they don't need a philanthropic entity, a fund to tell them what to do with these dollars. They need us to get more resources out the door to them so that they can continue to interrupt these cycles of racist policies, practices, programs. So important that the founders um, of NCF came together in the way they did because it was unapologetic. It was saying, look, you know, it hasn't worked so far. Whatever is whatever we think is supposed to be, you know, effective, um, it's not been effective, and and we're still suffering, um, as amplified during the period of time when NCF was launched. You know, you'd you'd mentioned at the top that black executives put themselves in a precarious situation. Can you speak, you know, with with wanting to be out front? Um, in in this space, can you just speak to I guess the balance, right? That that uh, black executives that gathered with the intentionality around a redistribution of wealth, the balance that they have to have within their own corporations, but then the the internalized responsibility and accountability that they want to have to black and brown communities that they are a part of. Right. I mean, so there's there's not one specific incident that I would point to, but I would say what we all know very, very well is that you don't get into the C-suite of a corporation, a Fortune 500, as a person of color without a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and compromise. Um, and um, so these folks, needless to say, have earned right their, their, their spots um, in these companies. And that's sometimes even for the the, the most fearless um, individual, you know, there's a lot to lose, right? They have families. They're um, m- most of them are, are mid mid career, but you know, mm-hmm. um, have really really fought hard to get where they are. And so to turn around and say, you know what, I'm actually I'm actually strong enough and I'm, I'm secure enough to um, require that this company respects that I absolutely need to be a part of the solution. And our CSR motivation is not what I'm about. This is about us galvanizing together with our own our own influence, also, um, and and saying, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna turn this model on its head. We're gonna we're gonna do it a different way. We're gonna do it a way that I guess I really do want to come back to that word respect um, mm-hmm. is is filled with respect for um, us for for us." You know, and I think when I when I was speaking um, earlier with uh, Norisha, and we're talking about making, as it pertains to Black women and maternity and mortality, and turning what has become one of the leading ways that Black women die, right? right. In this wealthy, wealthy nation that we live in, we're talking about what? 300 or so black babies dying every year in this industrialized nation. And so why was, you know, and I, and I give that those stats to underscore for, for my listeners, the seriousness behind this issue that isn't addressed on a regular basis. That is, you know, by virtue of Serena Williams being very outspoken a couple of years ago about her own birthing experience Outside of that, if you weren't in this space, in the medical space, in the in the wellness space, you wouldn't really know, right, about this. And so why for for this group and, and the partnership that you have, was this so important? 
I think first about my own um, birthing experience. And Nishira loves to say that everybody has a birthing story. Men have a birthing story. Grandmothers have a birthing story. You know, my birthing story is that um, I never would have entertained a doula or a midwife. I hate hospitals. It was, I still to this day remember walking in to give birth and cringing at the fact that I knew I had to be there for, you know, the the remainder of the day. Um, but I didn't know I had another option, another choice. And one mm. of the things I've learned from Nishira, which is so true, is that we entertain the, um, the concept that doulas and midwifery are um, non-traditional, but right. Yeah. She says it's the most traditional yep. way to bring a, a, a life into this world. Um, so the partnership's super important to me. I should say this also because MGB entrusted, um, new Commonwealth fund. Um, so mass general Brigham, um, entrusted new Commonwealth fund with this $2.5 million investment that we, um, are making, taking a position and saying, it's not just in the health equity space that we need to move these funds, we actually need to be educating folks in the policing and criminal justice reform space, folks in the youth development space, um, organizations that are doing work around economic empowerment, you know, housing. Um, These are all factors that play into the Black um, maternal experience um, and the maternal experience period. We need to be talking to men about how to support, you know, um, their partners um, or or their their daughters um, and and mm-hmm. that education is where the birthing center is pushing in with us um, and so we are thinking about this as a wraparound um, we're thinking about this as a community based effort so we really want to work with the folks who are trusted in different communities um, by those residents not us not you know not some random um, organization coming in. Um, and that might take place in a church. That conversation might take mm-hmm. place in a gym or in a food pantry um, or a school gymnasium. That's that's what this partnership is going to look like. We're still designing it, but it's really exciting. And I honestly think it's it's a model. What do you think that philanthropy needs to understand about how they can be partners, right? Um, because I, I have... Uh, by virtue of the work that I've been in, um, in in politics and in policy, have dealt with many different philanthropic organizations, individual donors, larger foundations, and what have you. And you know, most of the folks that are wielding the pen are those that are white, right? And and to your earlier point, um, less than ten percent. And I would probably argue that it's in single digits. It is, yeah. you know, like, like low, low, low single digits, yeah. uh, the amount of money that is given to, um, to black and brown people, but black people specifically. Um, and what I've heard from, you know, from, from philanthropists, from philanthropists is, um, is that, well, we just don't know where to put our money. We don't know where, you know, where the need is. It always seems to be some type of excuse. And so what conversation do you think should be had um, with these large, large entities that I'm talking, you know, are holding hundreds of millions of dollars, um, but remain gate gatekeepers right. in, in, a, in a lot of ways to social ills and issues that they could readily have serious impact on? I have had this conversation, right? I've been approached by large corporations that are foundations, and they have said, 
how do you find these people? How do you find these organizations? We just paid a consulting firm, you know, oodles of money to help us figure out who's out there doing this work. I mean, Danielle, it's about relationships. <laughs> I mean, it's about, it's, I mean, I hate to oversimplify it, but I don't have that problem, right? Like, I, you know, right. the Commonwealth Fund has not had that problem. We, the, the minute that we are talking to somebody who's doing the work, and that's the other thing I would say. I mean, I have so many conversations. I try really hard to, to have every conversation. Um, and to meet folks that are doing work, not just as potential singular investments, but actually so that I can keep track of who is doing what in what spaces and needs to be doing it together or talking to each other or learning from one another. And I, I just think fundamentally, like that's, a, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say, that's a black experience, right? Like it's, it's about your network that's on the yep. ground, your community, the person you can pick up the phone and call. That's my black experience here is, you know, I know if I don't know the answer, I know I have somebody to call who can tell me the answer and I don't mind asking, right? That's the other thing. I think that there's, there's gotta be, you asked what does philanthropy need to do differently? I think humility, I think mm. respect back to respect mm-hmm. again. And um, I think being honest about like, are you holding on to this forever and ever or did you actually want to put it to work so that our children and our grandchildren have a better world? Cause you can't, you know, <laughs> and, and I, and I think that a part of that, when you say, you know, the, the respect piece is also respecting. It is, it is deeply about respect because for, for people who haven't dealt in and around philanthropy, there are strings, lots of strings that are attached to then dictate to those that are on the ground doing the work, right. how the work should be done or how their money should be spent. And so how, you know, that, that in and of itself is paternalistic, right? And, and as I was saying, you know, with Nourish earlier, stems from white supremacy. And, and so it's, so it's like how, you know, the conversation with philanthropy isn't also about, you know, where you got that money that you're spending in the first place um, and how it was extracted, but also how, you know, how you build the trust with the communities that you say that you want to help. Um, and I think that it, that to me is what's so critical about your fund is that, I mean, well, you, you tell us how, how is this fund for those that are seeking resources different than where, where else they could potentially go? Right. I, and I hope to, firmly influence the, the other places that they could go um, when they start to understand that there's um, a lot of knowledge, a lot of talent, a lot of um, capability um, in these leaders across at least the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which is where we're focused. Um, and the, the way that I've been approaching it, and again, I just started in September, um, but I know a lot of these organizations from having worked um, across different fields. And, um, you know, there's, there's a difference between not holding somebody accountable and, um, the sort of the strings and the requirements. I mean, we want to be accountable. NCF wants to be accountable, but also the leaders of these nonprofits want to be accountable to the work that they're doing, not to the funder that is Mm. telling them that, you know, Mm -hmm. they jump through these six hoops, then they might be eligible for the next round. And by the way, design something that, that I'm going to have some influence in, in 
telling you what it should look like. When I don't even do this work, I'm not even close to it. I have no idea what it means, right, to run an after-school program or to, you know, have a COVID clinic set up on, you know, the corner of Blue Hill Ave and Quincy Street because that's where people walk by every day and they will accept support from a young Black doctor who, um, you know, takes the time to stand there and and do some education. Um, so, you know, get out of the way a little bit, but also help. Yes. Not out of the way, like hands off, out of the way, like right. what, what else do you need from us? And that's one thing that I think is um, not necessarily unique, but I'm very proud of is we are building out a capacity um, of technical assistance and capacity building um, structure that would allow all of the folks that we've invested in and anyone else to come to sessions to learn about fundamental things like how to read a P&L. What does lobbying mean? How close can you get to that line? A lot closer than a lot of nonprofits realize. Advocacy is real. It's important. Yep. Um, what you know? Do you do you need to create a, another five hundred one c three, or is there a way for you to bring in a fiscal sponsor so that you're not paying that overhead? Um, all of those things, all the way up to like, what's a collective impact model, and how might these five organizations come together? We're not only asking for for what those needs are, you know how to build a marketing plan, but we're responding right away. And I can tell you that all of the leaders we're working with are like, wait a minute, are you serious? Like you're, you're just going to offer this hour workshop. Um, we've even gotten the simple requests of actually, could we just be in a room together for 30 minutes? Like a Zoom yeah. room, a, a in-person room. Like I don't get to see other black and brown women who are leading organizations um, because I'm so blinders on, you know, running hard getting this yep. work done. And I'm really I'm just trying to do the work. Yeah. Yep. So those are the ways that I, th- I feel like we will differentiate ourselves. But also, like I said, I, I want to make sure we're influencing the philanthropic sector as well so that they start to emulate some of the things that we're, we hope to do that will work. Last question for you, um, Dr. McCreary, is what, what are your hopes for NCF and where do you see uh, the fun going, um, you know, and then in the next year and then, and the, and the years after that. Right. So we're going to take the next two years and we're going to, um, test in a few different ways. We're going to test, um, larger grants in fewer geographic, um, areas. We're going to test that still having that five, 10, $15,000, um, opportunity because sometimes that's what's needed right away without a huge process and a long wait. Um, we are going to partner with some other foundations to do um, uh, sort of an, um, a commitment that's more significant in a place-based model approach to see, like, does Great. that move the needle? Because to be honest with you, you know, we, we need to figure out, like, what is the best use of our energy and our focus? And it's probably not, um, you know, spread across the entire Commonwealth in, you know, five different pillars. Um, at, at 400 grants a year, right? It's 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 probably that we need to to decide this is where we're going to move the needle and we're going to get somebody else to be influenced to come in and support moving the needle somewhere else. So is it policy? Is it, you know, um, organizational development? Is it economic empowerment? Um, these are the things that we're going to spend some time testing out. We've made a commitment to a $3 million um, grant making budget for the next two years. We're a small right. team. And um, we're going to keep taking those meetings and keep having those conversations. 
And for those people who want to find out more information and uh, and understand more, get connected, please sure. share with the folks how go, they can. Yeah, go right to our website. It's www.newcommonwealthfund.org. As soon as you get there, there should be a pop-up that allows you to say you want to sign up to be on our newsletter and do that because you will get every piece of information, whether you're a grant seeker or you're a funder or you are just really interested in how we're evolving. Dr. McCreary, thank you so thank much you. for making the time for Woke AF and for the work that you're doing. Um, I'm excited about it. Thank you. So um, and, and hope that uh, what you're doing in, in, in Massachusetts will be a seed for, for what uh, can be done uh, around the country. Thank you. That is it for me today, friends, on this Woke AF Daily. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination. So pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation.